Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Our first reading tonight is going to be from Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Our second uh, reading is going to be from Colossians um, 4, 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well that God will open, open to us a door for the word, that we may declare the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Well, apparently, it turns out, you can't be the CEO of a football club and also part of a fairly ordinary church. This is what we've learned this week. If anything, you've been watching the news. Uh, It turns out that uh, Andrew Thorburn, uh, who uh, was appointed briefly as the CEO of Essendon Football Club, goes to a church that teaches things that Christian churches have taught consistently for the last 2,000 years, and that's not okay anymore, and so he's been turfed. Man, I mean, there's a lot we could say about that. There's heaps we could say about that, about what that means about our culture and the world that we live in, what that means um, for uh, Christians in workplaces more generally. We could talk as well, of course, about uh, how Christian commentators of various uh, stripes have responded to this in the media, some really well, some not so well. But it raises a question for us of of what it looks like for us to engage with the world outside of our Christian community, outside of the church, with the good news of the Lord Jesus, to engage with a world that doesn't trust in Jesus as Lord. I wonder if your own Christian faith has ever been tested in that kind of way, like Andrew Thorburn's has been this last week. Probably not so publicly, probably not so intensely. Uh, Though, actually, I wonder if disagreements about matters of faith between friends and especially perhaps between family can be at least as intense, even though not in public, perhaps. Uh, How are we who are seeking to bring our whole life, as we've been learning in Colossians, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, how are we to engage with the wider world? What do we do when our lives are somehow out of step with the ways of the world? How do we respond when people around us ask us, why do you live like that? What, why do you live like that? And, and what is it about Jesus that makes you want to, want to live that way? That's what this little passage from Colossians chapter 4 is all about, this final section uh, in uh, the letter in our series in this book. Uh, Paul's laid out throughout Colossians the kind of gospel in cosmic terms. Jesus is the in- image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead, the one in whom all things hold together, and we have come to fullness in him. A fullness that overflows in lives of loving service to one another in the Christian community, in the church, and in the households that we're part of, as we serve the Lord Christ above everything and everyone else. 
Uh, here in this last section of the letter, we see how life in Christ transforms our relationship not only to one another as Christians, not only in the households we're part of, but also to the rest of the world around us. And what we discover is, um, if you like, a kind of posture toward the world, a way of being toward the world, a way of orienting ourselves toward the world. And it's summed up in three phrases from this passage, devoted prayer, wise conduct, and salty speech. Uh, And those are the three things we're going to unpack a little bit as we uh, unpack this passage together uh, this evening. Devoted prayer, wise conduct, and salty speech. I didn't get around to putting a slide together, so you're just going to have to remember that those are the three points. Sorry. You'll be right. Point one, devoted prayer. Uh, In Colossians 4 verse 2, Paul writes, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. The first thing that Paul tells us about the difference that the Lordship of Christ will make to our engagement with the world beyond the church is that we'll need to pray. Not only that, but we'll need to be devoted to prayer, to make time for it, to make a habit of it. Uh, remember, of course, uh, that this letter, like, like most of the New Testament letters, is addressed to the whole community of believers in the church to which it was sent. They would have read it out aloud when it was delivered by a messenger in a, in a kind of gathering not unlike this, actually. We would have heard it read out all together. And one of the things that that kind of audience for a letter like this shows us is that what Paul's talking about isn't just praying on your own in private, as important as that is, but also praying together with one another in our fellowship groups during the week, in our church gatherings together, in our prayer meetings, uh, even just actually when you're chatting with one another after supper, if there's something that comes up, you go, we should pray about that together. Prayer should be a characteristic feature of our lives. And if we know that Jesus is the true Lord, the one who has triumphed over every other power and authority, then he's the one we're going to want to take stuff to because he's the one with the authority to do something about it. We're going to make sure that our prayers are always shot through, Paul says, with thanksgiving. And I think the, the idea here, uh, it talks about guarding, watching, keeping your prayers with thanksgiving. And the kind of idea, I think, is that if you actually bring your life to God with a thankful heart, it will keep your focus on God rather than on you. That you bring to the Lord all of those hang-ups and distractions that we have in our lives and give thanks for the gifts that he's making apparent, even in the midst of those things, the way that he works even through our hang-ups and distractions. Not because those things don't matter. We should bring them to the Lord. They do but in order to keep our hearts focused on him as the good father that he is. But Paul gets even more focused than that here. He says that in our devoted prayer life, there should be a special place given to mission, to the world out there beyond the the Christian community, hearing the message that brought us in here in the first place, that made us part of the people of God, in the hope that he might bring them in too. And so he continues, verse 3. At the same time, pray for us as well that God will open a door to us for the word, that we may declare the mystery of Christ, so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. Paul asked the Colossians to pray for, uh, quote, unquote, us. Uh, That is, I presume, himself and his fellow ministry workers and missionaries, uh, those who are in prison with him for taking the word of the Lord Jesus out into the world. Be praying, he says, for those who God has given the particular task of preaching the word of God and have taken that word to specific places. So be praying, he says, for your pastors, for, your, uh, for our gospel partners in the work that they do. And we're to pray for open doors, that is, for opportunities to speak the gospel, even when it looks like there aren't any opportunities available, at least on a kind of worldly view of things. Uh, this is God's work, first and foremost, and what looks like a closed door to us might well be nothing at all to him, just not even a door, it's just kind of like a wide opening somewhere, there's not even a wall. There's no barrier too great for him. And so be praying that he will make a way for the gospel to go out. 
And even though Paul calls on the Colossians specifically to pray for us, for the ministry workers specifically, I think we can and should be praying for those open doors for ourselves and for one another as well. Uh, And in a funny way, that's actually a way that you can take part in the mission of God, uh, even when you yourself feel like you don't have very many opportunities to speak the word of the gospel to people right here and right now. Other people who you know will. And so I think that would be a great thing for us to be doing regularly in our fellowship groups, actually, to hear from each other about the different doors that are open to speaking the word in our own spheres and to be praying for one another for those opportunities and the courage to take them, to pray for open doors in those places. There's a hint here as well that one of the things we really should be praying for and praying for an awful lot, I suspect, is the persecuted church. Uh, Verse 3, Paul writes that we may declare the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison. And he finishes the letter right at the very last verse of the letter by saying, remember my chains. Paul, you see, is convinced that even the closed doors of prison aren't strong enough to stop God opening doors for the word. And just as Paul was imprisoned then, so a great many of our sisters and brothers around the world, even today, are in prison or in some kind of danger or even fearing for their lives because they trust and follow the Lord Jesus. We must pray for them. We must pray for them. And actually, we're going to spend a little time doing that later in the service when we come to our time of prayer, praying for Christians who are persecuted in various ways throughout the world. There you go. That's the first thing that Paul tells us about how the Lordship of Christ transforms the way we engage with the wider world. He says, pray. Be devoted to prayer. Pray for opportunities for the word to go out. Secondly, he calls us to live the same kind of life outside the church and outside our households as he's already called God's people to live inside those spheres. Point two, he calls us to wise conduct. Verse five, conduct yourselves widely, uh, wisely, rather, widely. What would it look like to conduct yourself widely, do you think? I know. I'll think about that later on. Conduct yourselves wisely, he says, toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Uh, The phrase, conduct yourselves, uh, translates uh, one of Paul's favourite Greek words, actually, for describing Christian living, peripateo, in case you're wondering, where we get the word perambulate from. Do you know that word? It's a fun word for walking around, perambulating. Peripateo, it means to walk. Walk wisely, he says, toward those who live outside the Christian community. Uh, Wise conduct immediately takes our minds back to what was written in chapter 2, that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, And that same principle of life that has been described in the Christian community and in the household is to be applied in how we relate to those who don't know Jesus, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, serving as we have been served by him. And living that kind of life consistently in every part of your life, at church and at home and out in the world, that's going to spark opportunities for you to speak the word that will actually open doors Uh, The reason that's the case, quite simply, is that you actually just can't argue with a changed life. Facts can be debated, rational proofs can be undermined, but to see a life that's somehow mysteriously Jesus-shaped, a distinctive, perhaps surprising, authentically changed by the gospel person, that can't just be dismissed or argued away. It's real, it's right there in front of you. We'll see the kind of opportunities that Jesus-shaped living leads to in just a moment. But first, notice the urgency with which Paul wants us to live out the Lordship of Christ. Uh, He writes, verse 5 again, uh, that we're to live like this, making the most of the time. Uh, The phrase literally translates buying up the time. It's a word taken from the marketplace. You walk around the marketplace and you go, I have one of those and I'll have one of those and I'll have one of those. 
Paul says, act like that with the opportunities that you have to live in wisdom towards those outside of the Christian community. Seize every opportunity. Don't be asleep to the opportunities that are around you to do good to people outside the Christian community, to behave in distinctive, countercultural ways. Love them, serve them. Look for every single opportunity you have to live like Jesus toward other people. Now, uh, as uh, he um, uh, doesn't really in many of the other bits that we looked at last week of relating in different spheres of life to the Lord Jesus and to one another, he doesn't specify exactly what this will look like, uh, I think because it's just going to look different in different contexts, isn't it? That's why he calls it walking wisely. It requires wisdom, the capacity to figure out how the new life that Jesus is working inside of you should play out in your relationships and circumstances. What might that actually look like in practice? Well, I'm going to try and flesh that out for you shortly. Uh, But first, uh, I want to see where this kind of living will lead, which is two opportunities, not only to live a Jesus-shaped life, but to speak to the world about God and about the Lord Jesus. Uh, Speaking what I like to call salty grace. Salty grace, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's what we need in our speech. Point three. Uh, Verse six says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. Uh, Here we're told something about uh, the manner of our speech, the mode of our speech, and the means of our speech. The manner, the mode, and the means. Uh, Let's begin with the the means. Uh, How is it that actually our opportunities to speak salty grace to other people come about? Uh, Notice that there's an ought here. There's something that that you should do. The task for uh, most of us we see here is to answer so that you might be able to uh, so that you might know how you ought to answer everyone. Uh, it's kind of uh, paired with what Paul says about his own ministry as someone if you like in vocational ministry, he ought to be able to speak to reveal clearly the mystery of Christ and the rest of us ought to be able to give an answer when we're asked questions about our faith. Uh, It's a different kind of task, you see. Uh, To answer is a responsive task that flows out of the wise conduct that characterises a life overflowing with the fullness of God in Jesus. And the point is that when you live a mysteriously Jesus-shaped life, those around you will notice. Actually, they'll ask you questions about it. And your task is to be ready to answer those questions. That's the means. That's what's going to lead to actually opportunities to speak with salty speech. Uh, How are you going to do that? In a gracious manner and in a salty mode. Uh, Let your speech always be gracious, tells us about the manner of our speech. Uh, Those to whom we speak should find in our speech the same kind of grace that we found in Jesus. Uh, As people ask us questions about why we live the way that we do, our response should never be smug or superior or condescending or accusing or angry. After all, we used to stand where they did, right? So there's there's no judgment here. That wouldn't be gracious at all. Instead, our speech needs to be humble, kind, polite, And I think perhaps most of all, particularly in our circumstances, our day and age, uh, our speech needs to be non-defensive. When you have an opportunity to answer questions about your Jesus-shaped life, it's easy to see it as a threat to go, ah, oh no, no, what if I get it wrong? What if I say the wrong thing? What if they don't like my answer? What if, you know? What we're told here, I think in part, is not to see that as a threat, of course, but as an opportunity. Uh, you need to make sure that you're not kind of in, in your heart of hearts going, oh, I kind of need to like defend God from this person here. Because the fact is he doesn't need you to do that. He's okay. He's got it. He's bigger and stronger than you are. 
You don't need to defend God. And because you belong to God, you don't even need to defend yourself, actually. Uh, You can see why prayer is foundational to all of this, can't you? It's because it takes a certain level of prayerful trust in and dependence on God not to get so nervous about these opportunities as they arise that you just kind of flip out. But a gracious manner is going to be non-defensive. And maybe even more than that, maybe even more than non-defensive, actually it might be, be thankful, thankful speech. Can you imagine what it would be like if someone says to you, I just noticed that you do this weird thing and I'm sure it's somehow connected to Jesus or whatever because you talk about him from time to time. But can you tell me what that's about? Can you imagine what would happen if your response was, thank you so much for asking. I'm so glad you asked that question. That might be pretty disarming in and of itself. What a great opportunity to speak about the Lord Jesus. Now, is there a right time and place for robust debate and the intellectual defence of Christian truths? Yes, of course there is. But what we're talking about here, what Paul's commending to those who he's writing to, uh, is how to respond in those moments in everyday life and conversation when someone actually just notices something about you that's mysteriously shaped like Jesus and wants to ask you a question about it. Be ready to answer those questions and do so in a gracious manner. So, gracious speech will be non-defensive, humble, kind, polite, uh, but we shouldn't confuse that actually with being boring, if I can use that word. Instead, our gracious speech should be salty. Um, That's the mode in which we're to speak. Now, we uh, often use uh, salty as a slang term for someone who's just a little bit bitter about something. He was salty because he didn't win the game of Tetris he was playing, or whatever. I don't know, what do people play? Tetris? We're having a Tetris competition soon. Do you know this? Yeah, very exciting. Anyway, someone's a bit salty, right? If they, you know, they didn't win their game of Tetris and they get a bit kind of stupidly bitter about it. Uh, the slang term uh, plays on the, the taste of salt, right? The kind of bitter taste that salt has to say something about someone's emotional responses. The phrase here in our passage, seasoned with salt, uh, also plays on the flavour of salt, but in a much more positive way. It plays on the way that salt brings out the flavours of other elements in a meal. Add a little bit of salt to basically almost anything you cook and everything else about it tastes better. Side note, you don't need to listen to this bit, but I just can't go past this without saying it. I love salt so much. Salt is so good. I put salt in everything. I love salt. It makes things great. Anyway, enough about me. The point is, you see, that salt makes food interesting. It brings food to life. It makes it richer. Uh, In ancient literature, conversation that is seasoned with salt, using this kind of uh, idea, sometimes even refers uh, to the use of humour and wit in conversation. Salty speech means actually just kind of a bit of light-hearted banter, perhaps, thrown into the mix. Sidebar here, actually, the gospel has something to say about our humour, and I think that can help us a little bit with thinking about how we respond to questions and engage uh, with those outside of the church as well. Because often we kind of like just want to get super, super serious when someone raises a question about the gospel. Uh, Here's what Tim Keller has to say about gospel humour. You know Tim Keller's mantra is the gospel changes everything? Humour too, he says. He's got a whole article on how the gospel changes our humour. Here's just a little taster of it for you. Uh, Humour is like seasoning on food. Everything is flat without it. The gospel, he says, creates a gentle sense of irony. Our doctrine of sin keeps us from being overawed by anyone, especially ourselves, or shocked by any behaviour. And so we find a lot to laugh at, starting with our own weaknesses. They don't threaten us anymore because our ultimate worth isn't based on our record or performance. 
Our doctrine of grace and redemption also keeps us from seeing any situation as hopeless. And this ground note of joy and peace makes our, our humour spontaneous and natural. In other words, actually Christians, especially the longer they know Jesus, I think, will just laugh more and more easily. This is part of my, um, my story, actually, as I've grown in the Lord. If you ask Alison about when she first met me at uni, or Sam, what I was like when I first moved out of home, like, man, what a grumpus who took himself so incredibly seriously all the time. I have learned to laugh at myself over the years, and I think that's actually because of the grace of the Lord Jesus at work in my life. I think that can apply a little bit to how we answer questions about our faith as well. I think we need to be a bit more light-hearted sometimes in our evangelism. Not because the stakes aren't high, of course the stakes are as high as they can get, but because a little humour might just communicate something of the joy of the gospel. We should, I think, be able to be light-hearted in conversation about the things we're deeply serious about in the Lord Jesus. So don't be afraid to have a laugh at yourself, at other Christians, at other people, even as you kind of talk about the things of God with those who don't yet know the Lord Jesus. Salty speech. There's another layer to this image as well, which is this. It's that when you sprinkle salt on a meal or mix it into a dish, you can't see the salt and yet you absolutely know that it's there. Uh, my sister-in-law is a fantastic baker. Uh, she makes uh, lots of bread, really, really wonderful bread. She says the one thing that you have to make sure you put in your sourdough is salt. The only loaves I've, that have just been like, I can't eat that, are the loaves where I forgot the salt. Can't see it, but you know it when it's not there, and you notice it when it is. Uh, how does this you know, connect with uh, speaking in a way that's seasoned with salt? I think the idea is that our speech about Jesus from our own Jesus-shaped lives in response to things people notice about us might actually give people a little taste of Jesus. Someone who doesn't know Jesus might not actually see or recognise that it's Jesus in your speech, but there'll be something about it that means they have a little inkling of his presence, maybe kind of just beyond their grasp, but drawing them in, pulling them closer. There's something here. There's a, there's a presence involved in all this. The salty mode of our speech will be interesting, and it'll be interesting really in the end because it's genuine, because it comes out of a real life lived. Perhaps it might even be surprising as people see what it really actually does look like to follow Jesus in a life. At the same time, uh, salty speech is also going to be measured, right? This is a well-seasoned meal, not just like a spoonful of salt. Even I don't want a spoonful of salt, and I love salt. That would just be overpowering, right? Rather than overpowering, though, the salty speech on view here, I think, is supposed to be disarming. An unexpectedly calm, measured, authentically interesting response might just create, you see, a little chink in someone's spiritual, emotional and rational armour. Ah, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way before. That's not the answer I was expecting you to give. All of a sudden, my defences are a little bit lower than they were before. Salty speech, salty grace. It's going to be disarming for people as we speak to them. One way of summing all of this up is to say that what we need in our own lives, actually, and in the way, therefore, that we speak to others as the gospel flows out into our lives and beyond us, is what you might call gospel fluency. Uh, gospel fluency, right, the, the ability, if you like, to speak gospel for it to be your language. Gospel fluency is the ability to interpret all of reality through the truths and the story of the gospel. 
so that you begin to think and feel and perceive your own circumstances, your own life, your own self in light of what has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. It means seeing more and more clearly how all things hold together in him. You become gospel fluent as you begin to interpret your career through the lens of the gospel, your family through the lens of the gospel, your relationships, sex, property, politics, to see all of these things in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ as they connect to him, transformed in him. And as you become more aware of how the gospel story intersects in that way with your own story, you become a person who's able to let that gospel of grace flow out in ordinary conversation. Uh, Paul writes that if we can learn to speak like this, verse 6 again, he says, we'll know how you ought to answer everyone. What I think he's getting at here is that the more you're able to find gospel fluency in your own life, the more you'll be able to see how it might interact with the particular circumstances of the others who you're also talking to. Uh, If the only tool that you have is a hammer, then every spiritual conversation is going to look like a nail. Bam, here's my gospel presentation. Spoonful of salt. Here you go. But actually a person uh, who uh, is in different circumstances to you might need to hear a different angle on the gospel story to see what it's all about. A person who's lost a loved one and is wrestling with the finality of death needs the hope that Jesus' resurrection brings of life that is not finally extinguished by death. A person who can't say no to others, including unreasonable demands from colleagues or family members, needs the truth that God's love for them is not based on their performance or their people-pleasing, but on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. A person who's wrestling with shame needs to hear that Jesus Christ experienced shame himself. He was spat on and mocked and crucified between criminals and rejected by his closest friends in his deepest need. So that we might not be ashamed before the one who knows everything we've ever done and knows every secret thought. Speaking with salty grace will include listening well, I think, therefore, to other stories, listening for the ways in which the gospel speaks to their specific circumstances, using the gospel fluency that you've developed in your own life as you see your own life in the light of the gospel to be able to see how the gospel might speak to others as well. Now, this is... um, uh, A bit of a disconnect in a sense. It's just another thing that I wanted to say and I didn't know where to fit it, so I'm going to say it here. Um, A pro tip for you about how to have these kinds of conversations. A pro tip that I've stolen um, from this, this is the best book ever written about evangelism and mission. Really. I mean, the Bible, but this one. By John Dixon called Promoting the Gospel. It got republished in America as The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, which is a dumb name, but there you go, American Publishers. Anyway, that's probably what it's called now. Promoting the Gospel, really, really wonderful book. Uh, John Dixon's got this idea uh, in this book, uh, and he makes this suggestion, and I, I, I've never actually tried it, to be honest, so I don't have any first-hand experience, but I know others who've used this to great benefit in their conversations. It's a technique that he calls gospel bites. The idea is that you learn the stories in the gospel so well that you can deploy the things that Jesus himself said in response to the kinds of questions you might have people ask you about your lives. So, for example, you might have a a colleague or or a classmate who says, "Uh, Christians are so judgmental and self-righteous. I hate that so much about Christians. How are you going to respond? Now, you could get defensive. No, no, you're the judgmental one for saying that. Mm, That's bad. Don't do that. Or you could just kind of roll over and acquiesce. Yeah, we all suck, hey? I hate Christians too. Also not that helpful. 
Here's what the gospel bites alternative would be. It's a bit longer, takes a little bit more thoughtfulness, and you need to be really well-versed in the gospels to do it. Your colleague or your classmate says, Christians are so judgmental and self-righteous, I hate that so much about Christians. Your response, I hear you, I really hate it too, actually, and you know what, Jesus hates that about people as well. He told, me, he told this story once uh, about a religious leader and a tax collector, kind of like an ancient loan shark, you know, a real nasty, manipulative sort of guy. Anyway, the religious leader and the tax collector were both praying at the temple. And the religious leader prayed, thank you, God, that I'm not like that filthy tax collector over there. I've got my life sorted out. I'm good. I do the right things. At the same time, the tax collector in the same temple is praying, God, have mercy on me because my life is a mess. And you know what Jesus said? He said, that rotten tax collector over there, that's the guy whose side I'm on. Can you imagine how that kind of response in a situation like that does two things? It gives them a little insight into who Jesus is and is a much more interesting way to actually kind of engage with the fact that that God cares about these same issues. That'll take practice, but man, that's a good habit to have. If you can know those stories, the stories that Jesus tells, the interactions he has with other people, and have them ready to go, actually, use in conversation with people. Devoted prayer, wise conduct, speech seasoned with salty grace. Uh, What does that actually all look like in a life? Uh, It depends an awful lot on the people involved, on you, the Christian believer, on the person who's questioning you, on the nature of your relationship to each other, and on the circumstances as well. So I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like. I don't have like a list of here are things to do in order to live this out. But I can tell you some stories of what it has looked like for some people who I know. And so uh, to wrap all this up, I want to tell you just a few stories uh, of faithful sisters and brothers of ours uh, who've prayed for open doors to talk about Jesus, who've, who've been seeking to live wisely for him, and have had opportunities, doors open actually, as people have seen Jesus at work in their lives. Uh, first is uh, someone from church uh, who's uh, had a new job this year and uh, he's just been getting to know people, as you do, on the job. Uh, and one of the first things that he was asked by a particular guy uh, who he spent some time with now, uh, was, um, you know, what do you do when you're not at work? Like, what do you do for fun? What does your week look like? And he said, just, you know, straight off the bat, good courage right here already. He said, oh, you know, I go to Bible study Tuesday night during the week, go to church on the weekend, play a bit of soccer or whatever too, you know. There's the first thing, just kind of being open about the shape of your Christian life. Uh, these two have had ongoing conversations, actually, a, a member of our church, along with this non-Christian work colleague, who's just got some really interesting questions about faith. And in the end, they actually ended up going away camping for a weekend uh, with a couple of other mates as well. And as you know, what happens when men sit around a campfire in the dead of the night, deep things happen. There are questions asked and all those kinds of things. Here's the salty grace speech moment that I love so much from this story. At one point in the conversation, uh, this guy says... You know what I can't stand about Christianity? It's so exclusive. Have you heard people say this kind of thing about Christianity before? There's one way in, Jesus. It's only people who trust Jesus who get in. It's so exclusive. I hate that. How would you respond in that moment? Just think to yourself. He was our brother's response. He said, no, I don't think it is. I mean, don't you think that's actually a really great response? Not defensive at all. Leaving it open to further questions. Just saying, no, actually, I think, I think there's more to it than that, you know. That's been an ongoing relationship and conversation that has developed through little moments like that of just letting the gospel seep out into life and being willing to take those opportunities when the doors are opened. There's a guy at our 10 a.m. congregation. Uh, he's an engineer who now works in kind of middle management, and he had one of his colleagues uh, take him aside one day and say, 
I just want to say to you, one of the things that I've just come to really love and appreciate about you is this. You're a true manager. Now, those of you who are not in middle management are thinking, oh, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. No one wants to be a true manager. Managers are the worst. Not how this guy meant it. He was saying, I've noticed the way that you actually really care about the people who you manage, the ways in which you actually are seeking to do good by them, the ways in which you've kind of, you know, gathered them together to say, you know, let's talk about career progression if that's what you want. Let's make sure you're getting the support you need to grow in your role. And you know about their lives. You're a true manager because you care about people. And there's an open door to say, well, you know, Jesus cares a lot about me, doesn't he? And so I care about others in my work too. Last story I want to share with you uh, this evening. Uh, we had at our 10 a.m. congregation this morning, a member of our congregation, long-standing member here, uh, get up and tell us a little bit about a health situation that's developed for him this week. Uh, he stood up the front uh, here to say to us that just this last week he was diagnosed with liver cancer. Uh, not just any liver cancer, but, um, you know, he doesn't have a treatment plan yet, but the word that's being used is advanced, advanced liver cancer. He wanted to get up to tell us what it is that he'd like us to be praying for him. First, he wanted to pray for his kids, of course, as they process this news and see what that might mean for their life going forward. Secondly, of course, he wanted us to pray for healing. Thirdly, he wanted us to pray that God would somehow be glorified through all of this. And he told the story of sitting in a hospital last week with a bunch of people in the room with him, his roommates, he called them, his roommates in hospital last week. Another person with liver cancer, an elderly woman who's probably in the last days of her life, someone who, a young woman actually who'd been hit by a truck and nearly died. And he told a story of uh, just actually slowly over the course of the week getting to know them and praying for them, offering to pray for them. And he said to us, please keep praying for my roommates as well as you pray for me. Joy in suffering. The ability to say, Jesus is good. My father is good, despite what I'm going through right now. And to speak words of hope to others, even in the midst of that. A mysteriously Jesus-shaped life with open doors to speak about his goodness to others. Now, your circumstances might not be anywhere near as severe as his. Uh, and yet, one of the ways that I hear time and time again that people have managed to have really fruitful conversations with people about spiritual matters in their workplaces particularly is just the offer to pray for someone not even to do it with them right then and there but when someone has something going on in their life to say I will pray for you about that that can open up all kinds of opportunities there's just some, some stories I hope to, to give you a bit of a sense of what it might look like to actually live this out small ways so much of the time God's grace is big and his grace is so big that actually he can use really little moments like that to move people just a little closer toward Jesus and it might be that the opportunities that you have, the open doors that God gives you to walk through, are not massive, please tell me how to be saved kind of moments. Those come along very rarely indeed. I'm more likely to get those. People come to ministers for those. Actual real life stuff is what they come to you guys, their friends about. But those little moments in God's kindness and goodness can open up treasures for the kingdom. And that's what Paul calls us to be ready to do here. For our lives to be so transformed by the fullness we've found in the Lord Jesus. That, that fullness spills out in a life that is noticed by others as somehow mysteriously shaped like Jesus and gives us opportunities to speak of his grace and kindness to others. Let's pray that God will continue to shape us in just those ways.
And gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. We praise you for the way in which you've been reminded throughout uh, this uh, series, working through this letter of the Colossians, that we have everything we need in the Lord Jesus, that we have come to fullness in him already. There's nowhere else we need to go to get the kind of life that we long for, that we need, that Jesus promises to us. It's all in him. And so, Father, continue to shape our hearts to see that reality. Give us hearts of thankfulness to see your blessings to us in all kinds of ways. Uh, give us the ability to live that out in our life together as your people in our households and toward the world around us as well. Father, give us uh, eyes of uh, grace. Give us the peace that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus, joy in him that means that we can see those open doors when they're before us and give us the courage to walk through them. Help us not to expect uh, to change the world in our, own, uh, in our own time and in our own power, but in those moments to entrust ourselves to you, to entrust our words to you, to be given the salty, grace-filled speech that we need, to give a good account of the Lord who's been so good to us. Father, we ask all these things so that your name might be glorified, so that your family might grow. We ask it in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.